Welcome back, everyone, to the After the Show segment. I understand we've got uh, a lot of very good questions and calls coming in. We're going to try to get to as many as we're able to. First, I'd like to go to Marie Gronley, who did call back in. Marie, if you could share your question with us, please. Thank you. Uh, yes, I just I have a patient I saw for the first time yesterday, a 45-year-old uh, mother of two that she adopted from China, so parents, uh, morbidly obese uh, with ADHD. Uh, she has been on FinFin in the past for her obesity, and it worked really well uh, when it was before it was uh, well while it was legal, and uh, it helped with her concentration, weight loss, everything. Well, the thing I'm concerned about is she has a heart murmur. I don't know what type, but uh, I know that there's been sudden death uh, reported with the use of amphetamines. I wanted to start her on Vyvanse, but I'm I'm concerned about this structural cardiac. Uh, abnormality. So I was just wondering uh, what I can do about that. I really want to put her on Vyvanse, but I'm concerned about that. David, you want to carry that? Well, so let's review uh, the cardiac uh, risk factors. Uh, the cardiac risk factors in children are different than adults. Let me limit my talk to adults. Uh, first off, it's not essential to get an ECG in adults if you're considering using stimulant medications or atomoxetine. Certain structural abnormalities are going to be absolutely contraindicated, but other structural abnormalities are not. For example, mitral valve prolapse, which is the most common cardiac abnormality in adults, which is hemodynamically stable, is not a contraindication. If it's symptomatic, I think what you need to do is get an evaluation, a cardiologic input, an evaluation for what that structural abnormality is. And that's what I would recommend, uh, a cardiac evaluation, probably an echocardiogram, and then have the cardiologist give you an assessment. My experience has been that it depends on the comfort level of the cardiologist as to whether or not they're going to sign on or sign off on stimulant medications. So before you send them off to the cardiologist, you might want to query the cardiologist first on their level of comfort in dealing with this situation, and then you're going to live with that cardiac evaluation. Thanks. Jim, do you have a question you want to address? Um, is one question here that uh, I think is a good one to launch into, and that relates to lisdexamphetamine and um, its abuse potential. Um, this is an interesting compound or interesting delivery system, you might say, in that the, um, uh, the fact that the medication is a prodrug um, really limits some uh, potential for abuse. Uh, the medication is metabolized, uh, releasing the amphetamine in the bloodstream. So um, it prevents its, its uh, use in terms of taking it intranasally or injecting. Uh, nevertheless, the fact that the medication um, is an amphetamine, um, it, it still carries some degree of an abuse potential, albeit uh, uh, reduced versus the other Preparations. I might, I might expand on that, if, if I may. The interesting thing about uh, lisdexamphetamine is that the cleavage of dextroamphetamine and the lysine occur on an enzyme on the red blood cell. So you typically think of abuse of these medications by getting them into the system quickly, taking an oral methylphenidate, grinding it up and snorting it or injecting it, and you get a rapid elevation. If you take lisdexamphetamine, whether you take it orally or intranasally or IV, 
and you inject it. You get exactly the same mm. pharmacokinetic profile. So you don't get that rapid spike, and therefore you don't get the euphoric effects that are typically associated with the other agents when they're introduced rapidly into the system. Thank you. I understand we have a call from Dr. Licht from New York. Dr. Licht, your question, please. Yes, I want to elaborate further on that 21-year-old male college student who had tried Ritalin, Concerta, Vyvanse, and uh, reacted with uh, acne that was uh, pus pimples that were painful. He um, is very hesitant about going on Stratera because of these sexual side effects. He's also an athlete and plays um, about two hours of tennis um, every day. And he was wondering whether Focalin might help. Um, is there any chance that his increased sweat um, from working out so much um, has some further impact with the stimulants and perhaps um, using it maybe during a four-hour period when he's not working out? Or have you had anybody else uh, who is an athlete at that age, 21-year-old male, who's just been diagnosed in the past year with the inattentive type who um, had these difficulties and maybe some other stimulant or would work? He is refusing um, Stratera because of the sexual side effects, and he's very hesitant about it at his age. Well, I thank you for the question, and, and this is a clear example of what clinicians out in the field have to struggle with with their patients, considering all the options. I work with four universities in the Baltimore region, and I see a lot of athletes, actually, and this is a serious consideration, both from a, a cardiovascular issue as well as all the other side effects. Here's my recommendations. If the acne seems to be associated with one compound versus the other, in regards to stimulants, then stick with the one that doesn't. Although in looking at the details of the case, it seems that both methylphenidate and amphetamine products produce the acne as well. So that's not going to help you. You might want to go to dexmethylphenidate XR. That might be a trial. You may want to consider something off-label like bupropion XL or even further off-label considering modafinil. In regards to the sweating for cardiovascular and athletes, uh, this is a, a consideration the coaches need to know that these children or these young adults are on these medications. The, the sweating that can occur with exercise can be prolonged in the post-exercise portion because the vital signs tend to come down at a slower rate than were you not on these medications. But it hasn't been my experience over a large number of patients that the athletic ability is compromised by the presence of stimulant medications. Again, you always have the outlying patient, and so just be mindful of that. But hopefully that summarizes some yeah. of the options. In, in thinking about options, though, um, I think the observation that the, the um, individual was a responder to stimulant is very important. And I would uh, probably lean more heavily towards continuing to work with a stimulant uh, in my experience, um, you're, you're not going to get quite the degree of improvement with a non-stimulant, and the observation that, that they're helping is, is really key. Now, some good points. The other thing I, that caught me about that case, I do a, a fair amount of work with athletes as well. Whenever I see acne in young athletes, you've got to be thinking about anabolic steroids. That's really a very common side effect. It's not quite so common. So um, I understand Dr. Smith from Salt Lake City is back on the line. Dr. Smith, your question, please. Uh, a two-part question. One, the first is, uh, what is the mechanism of the quieting that comes from the stimulants? Is it related to alpha-2 agonism? And if so, what about the use of regular alpha-2 agonists in ADHD? So 
Alpha-2 agonists have been used off-label, guanfacine and clonidine. There's actually now a new formulation that got FDA approval for children and adolescents called guanfacine extended release. It's not approved in adults. So you're on point with considering those agents. My understanding of the quieting effect from stimulant medications is by increasing dopamine, you, you decrease motor activity. Another curious effect of stimulant medications that's not well documented but I've seen in patients is that not only do they say they feel calmer physically, but they also feel calmer psychically. And so their sense of anxiety diminishes as well. Did you want to? Well, the, the um, adrenergic effects of, of stimulants weren't appreciated initially, but as David mentioned, uh, we're learning that uh, the stimulants have pronounced effects not just on dopamine, but on the release of norepinephrine and probably serves to modulate the overall noradrenergic system, perhaps uh, relating to the, the calming effect. Yeah, I think that's an important point. Um, ever since we've been you know, we, we saw the, the little blocking of the presynaptic monoamines was the only thing you needed to do to treat depression. I think we sometimes have forgotten how complex and interconnected the brain really is. And we have some very interesting neuroscience data that's out there. But I think we still have a lot to learn. And it might well be that there are mechanisms we haven't even looked at yet that are co- going to turn out to be uh, important. So I think it's important for, for our listeners to understand that we don't really have the answers. We have some interesting provocative data, but we've got a long way to go in really understanding how these drugs truly do work. David, you have a, another question you'd like to address from the ones you have there? There are a few questions here that come up about anxiety, either treating ADHD with comorbid anxiety with stimulant medications, and to what degree will stimulants provoke anxiety? And so I approach this issue this way. Make the distinction between psychic anxiety, that is the experience of worrying and something awful is going to happen, versus the sense of a physical restlessness. Now, when patients use psychiatric terminology, they use them descriptively. So they will often say, I feel anxious, but that doesn't convey to you phenomenologically. Are they agitated? Uh, Do they have physical motoric hyperactivity or do they have this worry? So you have to make that distinction first. My experience has been that some people with stimulant medications with anxiety disorders actually get better without specifically addressing the anxiety disorder. Some patients get worse. And some patients will say, I'm anxious on this medication, stimulants. But in fact, when you inquire it more, they say, just, I feel a muscle tension. And they're labeling that in anxiety. So better define the phenomenologic experience of the symptom. And that gives you uh, a better idea of the pharmacologic treatment. Thanks. Yeah, certainly, I think the old clinical lore that stimulants cause or exacerbate anxiety um, has been proven to not be the the case for the majority, but there are individual differences in um, how folks with anxiety react to them. It's still very safe to pr- uh, prescribe stimulants to someone with a comorbid anxiety disorder. Now, if they have acute anxiety, I would treat the anxiety disorder first. So if you have a patient who has acute panic disorder, stabilize the panic disorder, then treat the ADHD. If they have mild anxiety with ADHD, treat the ADHD first, see how the anxiety settles out. A lot of these symptoms that are provoked by the stimulant in a given patient are going to be dose-related. So sometimes you can back down on the dose and evaluate, is it a stimulant-provoked effect or is it an independent experience? Good. So um, it would be common to end up with an SSRI plus 
a psychostimulant, um, but one also shouldn't ignore the efficacy of cognitive behavioral therapy. Targeting anxiety is also yeah. a, a, a great approach. Yeah. So that would be an, an off-label. But uh, again, getting back to the important role of it's not just the better living through chemistry, let's get the right combination of meds, but appropriate medications in combination with psychosocial interventions. Jim, did you have another question there you'd uh, like to address? Yes. Um, I had a, a comment from an individual um, in reference to our recommendation for the use of rating scales. Um, and this individual mentioned that uh, there's so many recommendations now for the use of, of these types of, of tools that it can be overwhelming for clinicians. Um, and uh, this this person feels that the recommendation for the use of rating scales um, goes against the individualization or personalization of care. Um, I guess uh, my comment is that uh, I understand the concern being raised, but I think the the gain from this systematic, thorough um, query of symptoms is very important. As physicians, the types of errors we make in data gathering tend to be more of uh, omission. And so a rating scale can be a good prompt yeah, yeah. to really uh, cover the, the waterfront. Secondarily, uh, but I think just as, as important, is uh, their use in monitoring treatment. Yeah. We yeah. don't do nearly enough to uh, track the outcomes of all of the interventions that we yeah. uh, prescribe. You know, right. it reminds me of when we were medical students, when we were first starting to take HMPs, we'd have our little cheat sheet in there to make sure we didn't miss, or our mental status exam when we were first learning, you know, to make sure that we address all the important areas. David, you had a comment? Well, I would make a conceptual distinction. That is, making a diagnosis that's predicated on a sy- symptom criteria with impairments in age of onset doesn't diminish the individualization of the subsequent treatment that we approach the patient. So it's not that the diagnosis is individualized. If you have ADHD, you have the criteria, you meet diagnosis. But the treatment is highly individualized in that they may need medication or not. They may need organizational skills. And so let's make that distinction. Yeah. Picking up on that, this is a question that's near and dear to my heart. It says, what about the use of aerobic exercise for treating symptoms? And, and I think this is really important. My own belief is that we've really underappreciated the role of a regular, enjoyable aerobic exercise program, whether it's ADHD, depression, anxiety. I mean, even our schizophrenic patients on the inpatient unit seem to do better. So I, happen, I, I can't quote any literature, but certainly my experience has been dealing with um, Olympic caliber athletes. We've done some studies with some of the international teams that most of the ADHDs, and we did a, a large trial looking at the, uh, the Egyptian Olympic team, and they report actually doing better in school and work when they're most heavily involved with their athletics. Now, whether it's just giving them the structure, but I believe it's something that we really have not paid as much attention to as maybe we should have, that getting, whether it's part of the routine or just getting a good, you know, a good regular aerobic exercise program, I believe should be an important part of the treatment strategy for all patients, including ADHD. What are your guys' thoughts? Well, I think that the aerobic exercise will increase your endorphins and your circulatory neurotransmitters, so you will get better cognition that may last for a couple of hours after that. I'm not sure that there's a persistence of benefit in an exercise program. Certainly, it increases awareness, and if you're exercising, you're making good food choices, you're much more vigilant about compensating, and you're much more aware of your impairments. That alone, I don't think, is a 
monotherapeutic approach. No more than the diabetic who needs medication should just go on exercise to control their blood sugar. Certainly it's additive if the patient finds it useful. Yeah. I've even had patients tell me they just feel better about themselves if they're able to accomplish something. You know, that so often our ADHD patients feel like, they, you know, they, they've underachieved. It's been a lifelong problem with them. So I agree with you, not as a mono-primary therapy, but as an adjunct therapy. I mean, uh, you know, there really aren't any negative side effects if it's, if it's a, you know, it's a, a well-monitored program. And, and, I, and I think it's, it's a good point to raise to consider this as part of the, of the total treatment package, as it were. Well, this We're, moves into... Jim? Uh, well, we want to, to try to achieve uh, wellness in, in yeah. all of our patients, and I think um, incorporating exercise uh, is, is a part of a healthy lifestyle and, and in thinking yeah. about recommendations um, for the whole patient. Yeah. Exercise should usually be yeah. up there. David? It brings up the issue, though, of complementary and alternative medicines. And so just because one patient felt better with a treatment doesn't mean that that's the treatment we should recommend to broad samples of patients with that disorder. If you review controlled trials of complementary and alternative medicine for ADHD, there are no more than 15 controlled trials. Many of the treatments that are advocated in the public really have no high-quality data support for them. So before we put the cart in front of the horse, I typically recommend to my patients who want to pursue that, I say, okay, here's what the research shows. We'll do it for three months see if there's a benefit, what are the target symptoms and metrics to track that, and then make a decision. If it's working, okay. If it's not working, let's move on. But sometimes complementary and alternative medicines get placed before traditional, more effective medications, and time is lost for the patient yeah. and the family. Good point. Jim, you want to pick up another question? Um, here's one question about uh, whether an, an individual who tries stimulants first um, ends up with less uh, improvement when atomoxetine than uh, follow stimulant exposure. It is true that um, the abrupt uh, onset of the, the stimulant, uh, that on-off yeah. daily experience, uh, really highlights to the patient uh, when the medicine's uh, working Something's and, happening. and when, yeah. when it isn't. And atomoxetine... Uh, lacks that, so sometimes there can be confusion about whether or not the atomoxetine is providing benefit, um, it, it being a more gradual kind of uh, uh, treatment uh, overall. But in general, I, I think when you do try to line up the data of, of the psychostimulants against atomoxetine, you see that the, the stimulant benefit does seem to be uh, more prominent. I think you addressed it early in the presentation, it's worth repeating again, is that really letting the patient know what to expect. You know, as David, as you said, you know, it's not going to necessarily improve your marriage, and you know, although it might in some areas, mm -hmm. but I think this idea of maybe we get caught into this habit of we're busy clinicians, we write the scripts, we give it out, don't spend the time to prepare the, what to expect and what not to expect. And I think you're right. Certainly when I put a patient on, on atomoxetine, I tell them this is not something you're going to feel right away. This is not like taking an aspirin for a headache. It's more like losing weight or getting into shape. You, know, you can't get up one morning and run around the block and expect to be in shape. You might be sore, but you're not going to be in shape. That it takes a commitment of time. Doesn't mean it's better, doesn't mean it's worse. And I think really this is an important issue for all clinicians of all disciplines that when we're dealing with the patient is to make sure that they really understand what they should expect and not expect so we don't kind of over promise and under deliver. Well, 
Patients have historically, when they've tried stimulant medication, said, you know, I know it's working. Well, how do you know it's working? I felt it Fail, kick yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. And now as the formulations are developed and they're smoother, patients are not really noticing that kick in. So they wonder whether it works. And again, that's why going back to the rating scales and looking at really the largely inattentive symptoms and does the reduction in symptoms produce improvement in productivity during the day? And our coworkers saying you're more cooperative and is your wife yeah. pleased that you're listening to her at dinner time? Those are the feedbacks you get. Yeah, I, I oftentimes use the analogy, you know, if you skip one piece of cheesecake for dessert, should you run up and jump on the scales and see if you lost five pounds? I mean, chances are probably not. But it doesn't mean that we can't monitor that. So maybe if you're doing a good diet and exercise program, living healthy, as we said, you know, maybe every week or two you might jump on the scale, but you're not likely to see that immediate effect that, that sometimes patients, I think, do feel when they go on the stimulants. Uh, any other interest? I know we have so many questions now. Any other ones where we're I have, down to uh, just a few minutes left? I have another question that comes up Please. on neuroimaging, uh, yeah. spec scans. Does, does doing these neuroimaging scans better define the diagnosis or better define the treatment options. The, the jury is still out on that. It's not ready for prime time. It might be useful for clinical research. It might be useful for subtyping brains and looking at, at functional abilities of different neural networks and neurotransmissions. But I don't know of any studies that clearly demonstrate in a blinded fashion that you can look at a neuroimaging scan and say, this person has this psychiatric disorder, and they will absolutely get better if I put them on this medication. We are simply not there yet. And so some patients are easily reassured by colorful pictures, but I'm not sure that it adds anything more to the treatment than making a clinical diagnosis and walking through you the You know, one of the things treatment. I think it's done, and I agree with you, but... I still have patients who think, well, you know, I'm just lazy. It's not a real illness. And I, I agree with you. We're not at the level of diagnostic specificity. But I think if we go back to some studies that Alza Medkin did back in the late 80s, published, I think it was around 1990 in mm -hmm. the, the New England Journal of Medicine, that demonstrated that there was a difference. And what I've used, I've actually shown some of these pretty pictures to patients who say, no, this is a real disease. Not that it's diagnostic, but I think it, it legitimizes. You know, if you have a pretty picture, it legitimizes it more than just you know, other clinical data. So, so I agree. I think we're, we're, we're clearly not there. Maybe we'll never really be there, but I do believe there's a value in the naysayers and the people who don't believe it really exists to say, no, there are some differences in the way the brain uh, functions. These aren't structural lesions per se that a neurologist might look for, but I, I believe it's, it's helped us really make this legitimate the diagnosis that yet yeah, it's real. It's not just laziness per se. So you use the, you use the picture therapeutically. Let's yeah. talk about neuroscience for a moment. What the differences are in brains. So we know that there are receptor density differences in dopamine in certain areas of the brain to age matched controls. We know that there are volumetric differences in certain areas of the brain, including the cerebellum, than aged matched controls. We know that there's different neural activation on tasks in ADHD brains versus controls. So we do know that the ADHD brain not only functions differently, but it's wired differently. Yeah. It gets activated differently. I think we can convey that to yeah. patients in order for them to buy in that, yes, this is a disorder, not a character fault. Right. Exactly. It's a brain-based disorder, but I guess the other part of the message is that there's a lot the individual can do yeah. to, mm -hmm. to manage uh, yeah. these difficulties. Okay. This is a very treatable yeah. condition. Uh, 
applying uh, various uh, yeah. types of treatment. Very good. Well, we're running down on time. Here was an interesting question. Is there any evidence of the role of diet, nutrition, or vitamin deficiency in exacerbating ADHD symptoms? I know, David, you just finished a review on that. Maybe you'd like to handle that one. Well, I looked at all of the, I just looked at controlled studies and a review of that. Uh, the Corcoran group does a phenomenal uh, research on accumulating this information. There are five or six studies in homeopathy, only one of which was positive. There's two studies in zinc, both were positive. There's a study with pycnogenol, two studies in pycnogenol. One was positive, one was not positive. Uh, diet, no controlled studies that are convincing. Neurofeedback, no controlled studies that are convincing. Chiropractics, no evidence at all acupuncture, no evidence of all. So if we're going to stick to high-quality data, research controls, again, 60% of, patient, of parents with kids use alternative medicines. Only 10% okay. of those parents tell the physician that they're actually on these medications. Very important. Well, thank you for that. And uh, again, it gets, gets back to Jim's point. It's just good, healthy living, you know, d doing the, the right thing in a variety of areas. Well, we're just about out of time. I want to certainly thank our audience who hung in there with us for, for this after the show segment. I apologize. There were many excellent questions we just didn't have time to get to. And, and hopefully uh, you, you will be able to follow up with some of these, a, a number of the websites that we mentioned on there have a lot of good and important information that you can look up uh, and, and get answers to these, again, very important and complicated clinical questions, really underscoring that this is not an easy thing to deal with, but a very important one. Uh, I certainly want to thank my uh, distinguished colleagues here. I know we've had a lot of fun doing this, but sharing your expertise with the audience. I certainly learned some things myself today, and hopefully by participating in today's event, you'll have made uh, yourself a better clinician in dealing with this complex disorder, but one that really has, I think, a significant amount of life disability associated with patients who have been suffering with this, many of them for a very long period of time, if not the majority of their life. So again, I want to thank our audience, wish you all a happy, healthy holidays, thank my, uh, my co-presenters here, and wish you all the best for a happy, healthy holiday season. Have a good day.